Alleluia, Christ is risen. The sermon today is about suffering and how to suffer as a Christian. <clears throat> and if this is not relevant to you today, it will be. At some point in your life, you will experience deep sorrow and suffering. However, before getting to that on how to suffer as a Christian, how to handle this and go through it, I need to explain a few things first about, uh, about this Sunday and about the text. We are now in the Easter season. We will be for a total of six weeks. But we're not, at this point, we're not considering Easter texts anymore. Uh, for example, things uh, of his appearances and things like that. Rather, what the lectionary has done is that it shifts to a time before Easter. It shifts back. Uh, and it... And the emphasis is no longer on the events of Easter, but on the benefit of Easter. What is the result of it? And the lectionary then rewinds to the time before Easter. It, it actually goes to Monday Thursday, uh, the night when Jesus was betrayed, uh, the night when Jesus, uh, in, in that moment, had a very serious discussion with his disciples. Probably one of the most uh, profound theological discourses in all of the Gospels happens that evening, that very night before he dies. And these are significant words concerning the darkest moment that is coming upon them. So on that night, this is John chapter 16, and we're going to be on this chapter for the next three Sundays uh, starting today. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. He says, this period of sorrow is about to start, and then it's going to go away when I see you again. And what is he referring to? This, he's talking about a very specific point in time. It's about 48 hours between uh, that time, Monday, Thursday, and then the time they see him. Uh, the night when he was betrayed, he tells them, you already have sorrow, even now. He tells them that very night. And it lasts from that moment all the way until his resurrection, when he sees them in the evening gathered together, and he says the very first words to them, he says, peace be with you. That's the period of time Jesus is talking about. And during that time, it was a period of just intense, uh, serious, dark sorrow that they're experiencing. Uh, we, we get a glimpse of this from... The disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, they, they, uh, they saw Jesus die, and they're walking back <clears throat> to Emmaus, and the disciples said, Jesus appears to them, they don't know it's him, he starts talking to them, and then they say these words, they said, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We had hoped this, which means... We don't hope that anymore. We had the hope, but we lost it. And another word for losing hope is despair. They lost all confidence in Jesus. This is a very uh, dark thing. They thought he was dead. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes just for a moment. And just imagine what life would be like. So what if, what if it were conclusively proven tomorrow that Christianity was a lie. 
And there were documents from the disciples coming up with this big, I don't know, this big hoax. Or that uh, Jesus did in fact die, but that he remained dead. That his bones were indeed found. And they actually mummified the body of Jesus or something. And there were documents written by other Christians saying, yep, this is really what's been the case for the past 2,000 years. It's just not real. What would you do? What, what would we do as a congregation? That would mean that everything we've done, everything you've done as a Christian, is just a waste of time. All of it. Uh, it's, it's a, I've wasted my life as a pastor. Everything that I've gone through, just a waste. This whole church building, all of it, a waste. It's empty. It's, there's no meaning to it. Uh, every penny, every second spent on this in your Christian life is without meaning. There's no such thing as forgiveness. There's no such thing as Easter or joy or resurrection. There's no, your baptism didn't mean anything. The Lord's Supper is meaningless. It's empty, so on and so forth. What, so if that were the case, what would you do? How would you even breathe? Um, we'd still have our sins and our guilt. Our conscience would still be weighed by, by guiltiness and, and sin. Uh, there'd be no answer for it. We would die alone. We would walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone on our own without purpose or meaning or anything. <clears throat> well, however you would feel in that moment is exactly how the disciples felt in that time, in that time period that Jesus is talking about. They had been persuaded by the Lord that he would rescue them and then they see that he is dead. He is, he's a cold, lifeless corpse and they have nothing. So, to prepare them for that suffering that they're about to experience, Jesus gives them certain words. And he says to them, uh, in, in a way to bear the pain and that darkness of the time, he says, in a little while. He used the word a little while. And he says it seven times, as you heard it in the gospel lesson, just over and over, repeated seven different times. A little while, a little while. It's, and then he uses this analogy of the most common event, which is childbirth. The, most common, the thing that every human being has come from is childbirth. He uses this as an analogy to drive this deep into their hearts. And he's uh, driving this deep into their souls because he wants them to remember this during that time. Because this is what's going to get them through that time. <clears throat> uh, just a side note. Those words that you heard, John 16, those words were directly for the disciples. Directly for them, specifically for them. The reason I'm saying this is because I've heard a lot of sermons where pastors will say something like this. Well, the little while that Jesus is talking about there is the little while of our life. And our entire life is just really a, a blip on the radar compared to the history of eternal life. Something like that. Um, and it applies to all of us. So this little while is that. He's, that's true. That's true. But that's not what he's saying there. That's not what he's saying in John 16. He's talking specifically to the disciples about a specific time period and a little while that they are going to go through. Um, the little while is those 48 hours that they're going to experience. I, I want to keep this straight because this is very important. I don't want to just rip the text out of context and then make the words mean something different just to preach the sermon. <clears throat> I want to keep it straight that the very little while is what he's talking about there to his disciples. However... However, with that being said, the Apostle Paul does 
in fact, use that same language and the same analogy later on in Romans chapter 8 to refer to the whole Christian life. So John 16 is specifically to the disciples, but Romans 8 is to all, uh, to all Christians. He's talking to us to explain suffering. And then this is what he says. There's a paragraph here. I'll read this. Uh, to, I'll read this to you. Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time, and he doesn't define the sufferings, that could mean, in fact, that does mean everything. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay. There are three takeaways you can learn from this. And they all build upon one another. So you have to pay attention. So there's the first one and the second one builds upon that. And the third one builds upon all of it together. And it's, it's fortified in this way. Uh, the first point is this, in your suffering. The point simply is that it will end. That's it. It will end. It will come to an end. Your sorrow will end. At some point, it's going to come, it's going to be finished. You don't know when, but knowing that it will gives you strength to endure it. The, the look, the advice given to people who are captured or being uh, uh, martyred or uh, persecuted and tortured, the advice given to them uh, is very simple advice to, to those who are going to, they, knowingly going to go into this sort of uh, torture. The advice given to them is simply this, count. That's all. Just start counting. I don't, it doesn't matter how fast, how uh, slow it takes, how, up to what number, it doesn't matter. Just count something. Just start counting. Why? Because it's a reminder that what? It is temporary. You, you can't, you're going you can't count forever. Uh, at some point, your counting is going to stop. So your pain will also end at that time. And you cannot count forever. So why is counting so helpful? It's because precisely when you're going through pain and sorrow in the moment, you, what your mind does, what your heart does, is you focus on the pain and you lose sense of time. And it feels like it's going to last forever. That, that's the feeling you get. And it, it's so dark and you don't know what, uh, how long it's going to last, how long it's been, so on and so forth. 
It, it's a time warp. You think, I'm just never going to get out of this. Whatever deep funk that I'm in, whatever sorrow I'm going through, I'm just going to be in this for the rest of my life. I'm, it's just going to last forever. And it's not. That is the temptation in suffering, is to think that it won't end, that it's just not going to get better. So Jesus gives us advice, not just how to cope, but he gives us advice uh, and he gives us hope itself, a promise. He says, it will be a little while, which is, it's going to end. We wait. What are we waiting for? The end of these things. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is this. Your pain will be turned into something joyful. It will give way to joy. Jesus has not only promised that the pain is going to end, but that it is going to end in joy. Do you see this? Uh, His promise is not just not pain. His promise is joy. This is a very different thing. So think of it this way. Think of it like the difference between a kidney stone and giving birth, okay? I have no idea what I'm talking about with either of these things. I haven't done either of them. But from what I've heard, I've heard that a kidney stone is comparable to the pain of giving birth. Again, you guys can debate this later. I don't know, but just bear with me. Okay, um, that they're comparable. I Personally, though, I don't believe it. I think birth might be more painful. Anyway, uh, if you have a kidney stone, you endure this great pain. You're going through this and and it feels like it's going to last forever. And then you're enduring this pain and sorrow. And then the joy of passing the kidney stone is what? That it's gone. That the pain is over. That there's no more pain. That's the joy. The joy is simply, I'm not in pain anymore. (laughs) That's all. But you have nothing to show for it, right? Nothing. What do you get from it? Uh, Just things return to normal. But Jesus doesn't use that as an analogy. He uses the analogy of childbirth, which is radically different. If you give birth to a child, you endure great suffering and great pain. And the joy of giving birth is what? That the pain is over? No. That the baby that you see the baby, that you see your child, and that there's something to show for it, that that pain was not empty, but that it had a fruit, a reward at the end of it. Do you see this? You never hear a mother say the moment after she gives birth, look, I'm so, so happy uh, because I'm not in pain. And that's what this day is really about. The baby is secondary. That's a a side thing. But the real thing is that I just feel good. (laughs) I feel better. No. No, her joy is the baby. She is filled with joy, not simply because she has no more pain, but because now she, she has her own baby. She sees her dear child uh, face to face. Her pain is ended not just with no pain, but filled and replaced, uh, just turned into joy. Okay, that's the second thing. Uh, so the first point was that the pain will end. The second point is that the pain will end in joy. And then here is the third point. And this is the most challenging and difficult and probably uh, most difficult to accept. But bear with me and think carefully about this. It is this. That the joy of the new thing 
is built upon the suffering that came before it, that preceded it. The pain is the foundation for the joy that is built upon it. This is a, a profound thing. The joy and the suffering are linked together. That is, they are, they are inseparable in this way. Jesus doesn't say, I will take, I, I will remove your suffering and replace it with joy. Uh, as if they're two totally different things. He says, I will turn your sorrow into joy. I will convert it. I will transform it into joy. That's something totally different. If our sorrow is replaced, then Jesus is simply taking away something bad and then giving us something good in the end and then saying, okay, it's just an exchange. But he says, no, your sorrow, that sorrow will be transformed and turned into joy. The thing that caused you sorrow is now the thing that is going to give you joy, if you can believe this. Think about it. Uh, For the woman giving birth, what causes, what is the cause of all, all of the pain? The baby. What is the cause of all of her joy? The baby. Is the same thing. The pain from the baby is now converted into joy because of the baby. You cannot have the joy without the preceding sorrow. This is what the disciples went through. It was the greatest sorrow that the disciples endured. What was their sorrow? It was that Christ died. He was crucified before their very eyes. And what is the greatest joy of the disciples? Is that Christ died for them before their very eyes. That is their greatest joy. That is their way into heaven. That is their forgiveness. The, the, the joy of the disciples is linked to what happened in those 48 hours. I, I want you to imagine a different scenario. Imagine if Jesus simply did all of this, what he did, uh, in the dark. Take all of Holy Week and hide it. So if all of Holy Week was a secret, he didn't reveal any detail. So Jesus goes up to his disciples and says, Hey guys, um, I'm going to be going away for just a couple days. Don't worry about me. Keep doing what you're doing. And then I'll, I'll see you guys later. And then he goes and does all of this in secret. And he suffers and dies and he resurrects. And then three days later, he comes back and says to them, uh, Hey guys, I'm back. By the way, I took care of all your sins. It's all done with. You don't have to worry about them. I died on the cross and people were mean to me, but I'm back and everything is okay. What do you think they'd say? What? what uh, Thanks, <laughs> or that means a lot, or look, I really appreciate this. You didn't really have to go through that. They, they wouldn't be as joyful as they were. And in fact, their character, their personality wouldn't have changed, would it? They would have been the same exact people they were three days ago. But it was through that suffering and then coming out of the suffering that they are changed to entirely different people. Ones who would gladly give their lives, um, spill their blood for the truth. In other words, to have the joy of Easter, they had to endure the sorrow of Holy Week. Now, the same is true for all of you. Our joy in heaven is to be formed from and to be accentuated by our present sufferings in this life. 
I'll, I'll say it again. That our joy in heaven is formed from and accentuated by the current sufferings that you are experiencing in your life. Not only today, but the ones that you have always experienced and the ones you will experience. <clears throat> the best, I, I think the best analogy that I've heard is, this is from another pastor. Um, he compares this like to a boot camp. That when a soldier is in boot camp, he doesn't like it. In fact, he hates it. He wants it to end. He wants it to be over. He, in fact, he's not hoping that the next day is going to be harder than the current day. He wants them to have some mercy upon him. Just, just give us one break to recover. Just give us a day. Just please, just something. Let me breathe. And he wants less suffering, less work. He wants less rest or, or more rest. And this is the, the condition he's in while he goes through this boot camp. But once he graduates from it, then what? He brags about how hard it was. <laughs> he talks about it. It is his great honor and joy that he went through this. And that, that, that moment, that time, formed him and made him the person that he is. That he's glad that he wasn't cut any slack during that time. So his, his suffering transforms him to a different person. At the, at the time, he didn't want to be in it at the time, but now it is the source of his pride and of his joy. And he's glad he went through it. I think that's the same for us. I've often thought about this question, uh, why doesn't God let us go straight to heaven? Why doesn't he just, didn't at, at the beginning, just separate all people and take those to him with heaven? Why life? Why does he let us live this life? Why be born and grow up and, and go to school and study and have jobs and suffer and all these things and relationships? Why, why that? Why does, he, why does he allow that? Why doesn't he just take us straight from here, from this valley of sorrow, straight into heaven and skip all of this? Um, I don't have the answer. I don't, I don't think anyone really does. But what this imagery of childbirth that Jesus is using here and that Paul uses is telling us this, that there is something critical. There's something critical to our long-term enjoyment of heaven that our current pain and sorrow actually serves. God has a purpose and a meaning and a use for every second of your pain and suffering and sorrow. No, I know it seems meaningless and senseless to you, whatever you're going through. But there is no needless or useless or meaningless pain. And in fact, it is not random either. You may not know the reason for it. God does, though. That, that matters that he knows. He, his reason is that it is for your ultimate good. It is for your ultimate good. It is for your eternal good, whatever you are going through, whatever it was. Look, let me put it this way. If it would be to your ultimate benefit for the, for, uh, if it would be for your ultimate benefit to remove from your back, uh, from yourself, uh, and remove from your back the pain that you're carrying, your addiction, your grief, your constant temptations, your cancer, your sorrow, if it would be for your ultimate benefit to remove them, then the Lord would 
remove them from you. Do you see this? If it would benefit you in the long run and it would carry you into heaven for the Lord to take this away from you, this suffering away from you, then he would take it away from you. You can be 100% certain that the Lord would remove it for you if, from you if it were for your good. But he has not removed this suffering from you. Therefore, that means your back pain and your addiction and your grief and your constant temptations and your cancer and your illness and your sorrow must be for your ultimate good. This is beautiful. This is amazing. This is for your ultimate benefit. That if it would hinder you, then the Lord would take it away. But if it is going to promote your salvation, then the Lord will keep it there. I want you to picture all of us in heaven in a century from now, when we're all dead, all of us. And picture us together talking and reminiscing about our lives, waiting for the consummation of all things when the Lord will return to resurrect the the living and the dead. Um, and we imagine that some people there in heaven approach us and say, look, do, do you guys wish it were easier in life? Do you wish life were easier, that you didn't go through that, whatever you went through? And I think your answer then will be different than what it is now. And that you would say no. No, I wouldn't go back and have it any other way. Any other way. Because I'm happier in heaven now that I went through those things. If my sorrow had been any easier, then my joy here wouldn't be so rich. (laughs) And the point is this. If Jesus can turn the greatest sorrow of the disciples into joy, and he did, he will do the same for you. I know that while you're in the midst of sorrow, you pray for it to end and you pray and you beg God to take it away from you, take, to take away the sorrow of your heart. And I know this and I know this and you should pray to him and you cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And if it is good, then the Lord will take it away in his day and in his time. But if he doesn't take it away, then it, know that it is for your good. A mother's pain in childbearing is not pointless. The pain that you bear in this life, whatever it is, is not pointless or meaningless or without reward. Not one second, not one nanosecond of your suffering, not one tear is without purpose or meaning that they can and must be for your good. God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the light into existence, the one who holds the galaxies in his hands, the one who rules the world, the one who numbers currently the hairs on your head. The one who doesn't let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from his will and his knowing. This is the same one who became man and poured out his life from his wounds. Who redeemed you with his precious blood and he forgave you all of your sins. This one, this isn't me, this isn't the LCMS, this isn't the synod, not a person or a pope or a committee that is saying this to you. This is God who said this. That all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means all things will work together for you, for good. Because he promised it. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
those who reap, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. That day is coming. You simply wait for the Lord. You wait. You be patient. You be strong. You take heart because Jesus says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen.